While they're exiting the stage, why don't you take a Bible and go to Romans chapter 12. I will tell you that normally what I prefer to do is get to a passage of Scripture and ride the wave for about 30 minutes. Uh, Today, we're going to get to this Romans 12, but it's going to take us about 20 minutes to get there, all right? So, Romans chapter 12, first two verses, we will get there sooner or later, so don't, uh, don't despair. It still forms the central part of what we're going to say today. Uh, I know that we're a younger set in this uh, service than we tend to be in the early service, and so I, some things I feel like I need to explain in here that I don't have to explain to the early crowd. So let me tell you, there was a time in church life where we regularly had special kind of meetings that occurred above and beyond the normal uh, routine in church life. We called those meetings revival meetings. Now, most churches just called them revivals, but uh, most of the time they were just another set of meetings. Occasionally a revival might happen, but uh, not every time. And so we had these meetings, and they would stretch for a week or sometimes two weeks at a time. And I know in our church there was a history here that we had one that stretched for a number of weeks because God was actually doing some things in lives. And so those were called revival meetings. Most churches, in Texas at least, where I've served, uh, most of my ministry would have two of those meetings or sets of meetings every year, Uh, which means that over a period of time, the pastors of the churches began to run out of options on who to have come in, a guest speaker, and lead those things. And so a lot of those guys started going to their seminary professors and used the professors to preach revival meetings. That's the backdrop for a story my dad used to tell me uh, as it related to growth and personal development because apparently my dad had a professor in seminary who was one of those guys that uh, pastors like to pull in and so he this professor told them in class one day guys you just need to know that if you ask me to come preach a revival at your church one of the things that I'm going to do is what I love to do when I go to churches and pastors and that is to go into the pastor's office and spend a little time looking at the books in his library Because I've found as a seminary professor, that's the best way for me to figure out when that pastor died. Now, the idea of that is that, and this becomes a fundamental part of what we're going to be talking about today, that the tendency that we have in our educational development or, in this case, in our spiritual development is to grow to a point and then we just kind of plateau there. And that becomes the year in which we died, in one sense. In this particular case, let me, let me pull it back to me so that maybe I can say this with a little more oomph for you. It was almost exactly nine years ago now, uh, within a week or so of a nine-year anniversary for me, that I was in the middle of preaching a sermon, a church that I served down in deep south Texas, I was preaching through the book of Ephesians, and I reached a point in the book of Ephesians that was very critical for uh, some of what I'm going to be talking about today. As a matter of fact, I could have used that passage today as my text, but I wanted to be somewhere else uh, for good reason. Uh, And I was in the middle of preaching that passage about growing spiritually. And I asked the same question of that church that I'm going to ask you more than once today, and that is this question. How long has it been since God took you to a whole new level in your walk with him? 
When I said that in that particular uh, context, on that particular day, preaching to that church, it was as if the lights went out in the auditorium. Now, they didn't, but they might as well have because in that spot over on this side of the stage, it was as if a lightning bolt from heaven struck me right between the eyes, and this is the message that I got from God. Remember, the question was, how long has it been since God took you to a new level in your relationship with him? And God spoke as clear to me to that day as he ever has. Mark, that question is for you, not them. Now, you don't get off that easy today because the question for you today, all right? But that question and that response from God to me on that day set in motion a whole series of events that absolutely revolutionized the way I approached my job as a pastor. Now, I'll tell you a little bit more of that as this message unfolds and how that was true, but I want to bring the question back and I want to leave it squarely in your lap today. How long has it been since God took you to a whole new level? In other words, in which year did you die in your spiritual growth and development? Behind it all is this basic presupposition that I have based on many years now of observation in the lives of church people, that it is very easy for us to get to a level in our spiritual lives and then just plateau there and spend sometimes decades without any more growth. Whatever else you want to call that, the Bible won't accept that as the norm. So I want us to look at this a little bit today. I want you to be honest with yourself as I ask you the question, in which year did you die? Now I know, and I don't want you to think that this is all, you know, me up here just, you know, throwing rocks or anything like that. I I look out across this crowd and I know I've had many discussions with many of you and I know that God is actively moving you and working in your life and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not just assuming that everybody is not where they need to be. I just want us to recognize as we continue the process now of reviewing our purpose as a church, this is the second installment of that, by the way. The second installment of us looking at what we say we're about as a church, and it falls into this idea of spiritual growth. In just a second, I'll show you what the, uh, the, the uh, Constitution says about it. But the, the idea is that we're supposed to be growing, and that's supposed to be what we're about. I want us today to put on some critical analysis kind of glasses and ask ourselves just how effective are we at doing that. Here's what our Constitution says. We quote our purpose to be, and this is the second entry. First one we looked at last week, and that was exalting the Savior. This one says, we quote our purpose to be the study of Christian principles and the practice of the Christian life as revealed and taught in the New Testament. That's a mouthful. Let me just boil it down for you into our little bumper sticker approach, and that is we say that we are about equipping the saints. Let me say it a different way. This one is one of those that I would love to see us right across the backsides of our foreheads so that our minds have to see it all the time. Crestwood must be a growth zone. Now, I want us, before we get through this, we'll look at what that means and where I believe we find that in Scripture and then maybe just a little bit at the end on how do we pull that off. But let me hit it again. Crestwood must be 
a growth zone. And as we look at what that means, I really kind of want to start on what it doesn't mean. Because we come from a long tradition in our denomination about how we measure and uh, growth and what we consider to be a successful church, all right? And I am almost totally ignoring that. I don't want to ignore it because I think we need to call it what it is, which is garbage. But let's at least pull it out for a second and say there are historically three different things that churches use to decide how successful they are. They all start with the letter B. Because as people, we don't want to have to think up stuff. We find ways to memorize it easily. So one of those is, well, what is the first B for church growth? Baptisms, all right? And so we even have a place up here on stage. If you decided right now you wanted to get baptized, okay, then we could throw some water in there, probably going to be cold. We could dunk you, and we could say, well, there's another notch in our spiritual gun belt, and we're doing better because we baptize somebody. Do you know, I've known ministers who are baptism machines. You know what I mean by that? They'll get you to make a decision for which they will baptize you, and you'll never know what hit you. But they'll go add it to their list. I know this because I had a guy like this on staff with me one time. Just drove me nuts. Baptisms are important, but they're not the measure of a church. What's the other B? There's two more, actually. Buildings. So many churches would say, by the way, uh, we're in one of multiple buildings here on our property. And some people would say the more buildings you have, the more success you have as a church. I've never heard a custodian say that. Or an insurance, well, maybe insurance guy's a different thing. But anyway, so here's the third one. If those two are true, what's the third B to measure success? Budgets. The more money you have, the more successful you are. The more money you run through the coffers, the better you are. The more money you spend on ministries, the more successful you are. Now, here's, here's my personal belief about all that stuff. Those things have their place, and they are valuable for us as tools of analysis, but they do not and cannot and never intended to determine the worth and the value and the success of a church. What does it mean? When I say that Crestwood needs to be a growth zone, If I'm not talking about those things, here's what I am talking about. We must, as a church, intentionally nurture an environment where people who attend here become more like Christ. And I want to let that sink in because as, you know, that's kind of one of those duh kind of statements But I don't ever remember hearing that in any of my seminary classes. We must, as a church, if we're going to hold to this statement of purpose, equipping the saints, we have to have a standard that we are looking to that helps us know when we are successfully achieving this end. We have to create intentionally an environment where we nurture that kind of growth in people. That needs to happen regardless of what age or stage a person comes in here. I feel like I need to kind of get behind this a little bit for you to understand what I'm talking about. We, if somebody walks in 
off the street, and they come in here and they don't know anything about God or about Jesus Christ or anything like that. We as a church need to have the mechanisms in place. By the way, that means people and structures to help take that person and walk them into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We call that getting saved. That's where the baptism stuff comes in. But historically, Baptists have been known to do that and get them on the team, in the game. In other words, we baptize them and then abandon them in the process. We must be good. No, that's not good enough. We must excel at helping people into a relationship with Christ and then a lifetime of growth and development with him. We call that, in academic terms these days, the spiritual formation process. It's, it's complex. It's not just a simple thing for us to pull off, but it has to be what we're about. And no matter what stage in that spiritual growth a person comes to us, we as a church need to be prepared to take them to another level. If a seminary professor walked in here, first of all, he wouldn't be very comfortable, most of them, uh, because, well, never mind. Uh, If they walked in here, we should have the mechanisms to take that person further in their relationship with Christ. Just like if it was a person who walked in who had never heard of Jesus in the first place. So let's look at this a little bit and and make sure that we understand. It's got to be balanced, okay? And what we're talking about here, it has to be balanced and holistic growth. A a number of years ago now, many moons ago, uh, I had a class in one of my seminary studies where I had to had is the right word. I had to sit through this whole semester worth of design development understanding of how Southern Baptists do Sunday school literature. Now we're a Baptist church. For the most part, we use. Southern Baptist literature out of Lifeway. Back in those days, it was called the Sunday School Board. Uh, And so part of what I had to do in order to graduate, because I had uh, an emphasis in religious education uh, as one of the minors for that part of my degree, uh, I had to sit through this design and development class. I learned some things that have helped me. And it helps me understand and explain some of what we do as a church with our Sunday school. In preschool, I'm talking about levels here now, okay? In preschool, and those of you who teach preschool Sunday school, uh, the whole intent there is to get basic truth out to the kids. God is love, and your parents are not as mean as they seem, and, you know, those kind of basic general truths. You know, God made everything, all the, the general truth, Okay? That's preschool Sunday school. That's the whole intent when they write that stuff. Children's level, for those of you who teach children and you're wondering why you do the same stories every two or three years, it's because the design of children's Sunday school and Baptist Sunday school work is just to get Bible stories out there. We want to increase Bible knowledge. By the time those children then get to be teenagers... And their ability to think abstractly begins to develop. Then we start throwing Sunday school stuff into them that help them take those stories that we put in them and to expand on them. What are the spiritual truths of these things? We're still focused on Bible knowledge, but now we're taking it out of the concrete and into the abstract. With the adults... 
I don't really know what we're trying to do with them, to be honest with you. By design, we're just doing the same thing we've done with teenagers, but theoretically on a grander scale. And while I think all of that's okay, and you're probably sitting out there going, why are you telling us this? The reason I'm telling us this is because somewhere we need a revolution about how we think about the education process of a church. We have churches that are full of biblically literate people who are spiritually anemic. So let me put it this way in the form of a question. Is Crestwood producing maturing Christians or just biblically literate people? If we say that one of our points of purpose is to equip the saints... The idea of that is to take biblical teaching that is tied to our spiritual formation and equip people with that to function in a lost world as disciples of Jesus Christ. How well are we doing that? My suspicion, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm afraid I might not be, is that we kind of set up a hierarchy. And so we come in and somebody that seems to know a lot about the Bible, we just immediately assume that they are living the Christian life or they're growing in their spiritual life in such a way that they become the experts. And what we do with that, if we're not careful, is we set them up and and then they set themselves over as going, okay, well, I'm more advanced than these people, so I can just kind of coast in my spiritual development. I'm not accusing anybody of that. I'm just saying there are inherent dangers in, I think, the way that we have set up this whole educational approach when it comes to how we're doing church. And it may very well be that we have raised generations of people who are biblically knowledgeable but spiritually naive. Whatever else happens for us, we have to be thinking Christian people. I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments. But before I do, let me just kind of bring this home before I take the next step. This is back to what do I mean by Crestwood needs to be a growth zone. Let's drop it right back in your lap. What is God teaching you these days about how to live for him or how to live with him? If you drive down the highway, you pass these areas where the state has said we're working on this highway. And so they'll throw up signs on the side of the road that say construction zone or watch out men working or at least slow down to 10 miles above the speed limit now. That they'll give us warnings you're moving into a place where stuff is happening. Where in your life is God hanging those kind of signs? What is he teaching you? If you had to step back this morning and look at your life over the last six months or six weeks, where would he have said, this is an area that we're continuing to develop you in your spiritual life? If as a church we are not helping people in that way, we're missing our purpose. Let me show you why I believe that's true. Now, ultimately, here we're about to get to Scripture. I know that we're 20 minutes in. You're going, this guy doesn't even have a Scripture today. You're going to wish I didn't before it's all said and done. (laughs) You see, 
There's a biblical mandate for every Christian. A biblical mandate for every Christian that says, grow up. We don't like those kind of things, but it's necessary. Jesus gets us started in this conversation. You remember over in John chapter 3, where Jesus is confronted by this guy, and the guy says, well, you know, I, what, I hear what you're teaching. I'm putting this in road tramalese, okay? I hear what you're teaching. I'm tra- you know, um, what do I have to do to get the life that you are talking about? You remember what Jesus said to him? You have to be born again. I want you to think about what Jesus is saying with that. And then we put other passages of Scripture with that that help us to kind of begin to flesh that out. Inherently, Jesus teaches us that the whole idea of spiritual living, walking with him, is a growth process. The entry level is growth, I mean, is birth. You have to be born again. Jesus confronted every one of his followers As we find them, we call them the 12 disciples. He confronted every one of them coming into Scripture when he said to them, follow me and what? And you can just chill out the rest of your life. That's the Baptist interpretation of this discipleship thing. Follow me and I will make you. Now we jump to the fishers of men part. Don't miss the verb. I will what? Make process. Do you hear that in that? You're not there. Just because you choose to follow me doesn't mean you're going to immediately be there. I will make you this. It is a growth. It is a development. It is a process. You know, in real life, I'm talking away from church, away from the spiritual discussion, but in real life, we expect, we naturally expect Growth and development. I used to be a youth minister. Been there. Been to camp. Bless your heart. Be praying for you this week. But I'm not going. You know one of the hardest things for me to deal with as a youth minister when I first started? Junior high girls. Okay? Now, girls, you know I love you, right? All of that? Just go ahead and check your phone, whatever. Don't listen for a few minutes. Parents are going, no, don't tell them that. All right. Um, Junior high girls, this one girl, every time I'd walk into the youth room, she'd come running from some hidden spot somewhere and jump on my back and just, you know. So I'd flip her over and throw her down on the ground. No, see, I couldn't do that, but that's what I wanted to do. It's hard for me. One of the things that you get with a 13-year-old, I'll just use boys now, okay, because boys are animals. At 13, they, they, don't, they don't have any filters. They're just raw animals. So what you get is an emotional development problem. Right? I, I'd, I'd be teaching. I, I remember this one kid, I was teaching this. Deal, and it was important stuff about walking with Jesus. And this kid is in the back. He had brought with him a surgical glove. I guess he had gone to doctor or something, he had blown it up so it's got these fingers like this and he puts it on his arm and he's doing this the whole time. This is serious. Now you see, now I know enough about developmental psychology, all of you teachers out there, you've studied all that kind of stuff. There's a reason they teach you that in your education training 
because you're going to get stuck with a junior high boy in your class at some point, and you're going to go, come on, man, grow up. And his answer is, I am growing up. I don't know. Okay, that's okay if you're 13 years old, but if you're 40 years old acting like that, that's a problem, right? I know, see, wives are throwing elbows now. Come on, I wasn't picking on your husband. We expect development in life. My mother was a school teacher, fifth grade for years. And she had this practice when she would get a kid who came into her classroom who was behind in the reading expectation list, she would mentor them on her own and she would do like hooked on phonics or something like that. And her goal was to get that kid up to grade level. Does that make sense? A lot of educators in our church. You see, in the education process, we expect that. Why don't we expect that in church? Why is it that we've made it acceptable in our churches to have people who made a decision for Christ and got their fire insurance away from hell sealed away and for 30 years they never grow spiritually? Why do we call that normal? Matter of fact, I, I've, I came up with this a number of years ago speaking to junior high kids. In our churches, we have kind of reached the point where subnormal is so common that it's... Even though it's abnormal, we call it normal. You, you understand what I'm saying with that? How many people in our churches, I'm not just talking about us, I'm just talking about generally speaking America Day, I, I'm concerned about the... <clears throat> I don't want to use that word. I'm, I'm concerned about the state of the church and its impact on American society. I'm concerned that we've lost our best shot at making a difference. I'll say it before this is all said and done. I'll just go ahead and throw it in now. I don't know who it was, some guy in history, some wise person in history. I know who it's attributed to, but I'm not sure. Historians are not sure. So let me just say generally, somebody said this. The level of thinking that got us into this mess is not sufficient to get us out of it. We need a new paradigm in church education. Because what we have been doing is creating biblically knowledgeable people who are spiritually retarded. And it's not normal. And according to Scripture, it's not acceptable. So when we as a church say that we will be about equipping the saints, we need to be a growth zone. I'll say it this way. If you come to this church for a period of time, let's say I've been here three years. Let's say for the next three years you come to this church and you plug in. If we are doing our job right as a church, you will not leave the same person you were when you came in. You should be at a much further advanced stage in your Christian development than you are right now. That's the way it should be. So many of you sitting out there have been part of this church for a long time. Is that a valid statement? Have you grown spiritually? Are you further than you were three years ago? Well, I don't want to say three years because I've been here three years. Let's say ten years. That way it takes it off of me, right? It's not on me. It's not on your teacher necessarily. It's on us. We all have to own this. So, let me take this. Oh, hey, let's go to Scripture. Romans chapter 12. I'm almost through, actually, so don't think that I was just introduction. Romans chapter 12, I should say before I even read this that 
This whole idea of growth as the norm in the Christian life is all through Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, that's where I was preaching the sermon that day when God said, hey, this is for you. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the move, the intentional move of the people that God has gifted to lead a church to move people into maturity. Maybe the better way to say that is maturity is not a destination, it's a process. And so into the maturing process. So we could find this is taught there in Ephesians. It's taught in the Great Commission. Jesus doesn't say go out and make converts. He says make disciples. We find it in Exodus When I finish this series, I'm going to be preaching out of Genesis 12 and following to kind of help expand on this whole idea of growing in Christ as we see with Abraham. But you see in Exodus, children of Israel, God begins with them coming out of the promised land. And what does he do for them? He opens the water, walk across. Remember that? You with me? Everybody with me? All right. Opens the water, they walk across. Egyptians come through, they drown, etc. Now they're out in the promised land. What happens? First rattle out of the box, we're hungry. Me too. I think actually they may have said we're thirsty first, but whatever the case is, however it works out, they say we're hungry, we're thirsty, and so God gives them and God gives them. And so we find this 40 years worth of process walking through. But you know what? There comes a day in the life of the children of Israel that God says essentially today is graduation day. Everything that I've taught you now has to come home Will you trust me when you step into the promised land and the battles start? That is God's way. It is the norm in the Christian life that he expects us to grow and to develop. Here's the choice choice text for the day. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I I just got to tell you, I could probably preach six weeks on these two verses. I'm going to have to pull it down in the six minutes. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, let me stop and say it this way. That little section that I just read builds on the first 11 chapters of the Roman, of the letter to the Romans, okay? Small statement, but it's 11 chapters worth of some of the deepest theology we find in the New Testament. By the mercies of God, Paul wraps up everything that he said in 11 chapters and he calls it the mercies of God. And so based on all of that, he says, I appeal to you, I urge you. It's a counseling term. I beg you, based on all that I've talked to you about who Jesus Christ is and what he does in you and through you and for you and with you, all of those things we find through the first 11 chapters, I beg you, based on that stuff, then he says it, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, what is good and acceptable, just jump, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's what he says. Based on who Jesus is, what he's done for you, what he's doing with you, what he does through you, based on all of that, the only logical decision is that you abandon yourself to him. That word there, spiritual, the last couple of words there, spiritual worship, actually in Greek it's the word that we get the word logical from. I think in this case we probably should just use the real sense of that term. Spiritual is okay. It's not the friendliest translation because the word means logical. Paul's saying based on everything I've told you, it only makes sense. Abandon yourself to God. Let's stop there for a second. Let's wear that one. 
How are you doing with that part of your life? Did you bring any part of your life in here with you that you've said, God, you can't have that part? Abandon all of it. It fits this living sacrifice, fits very well with what Jesus says. If any man would come after me, let him, what? Deny himself, take up his cross. Those two together mean the same thing. Essentially, it means you need to die to yourself. You want to follow Jesus, you're all in or you're not in. We don't teach that in Baptist churches very much because we wouldn't get anybody to buy into it. We couldn't get our baptisms then, could we? We need a new paradigm here. Jesus said to his disciples, come follow me. Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today. Well, I'm not even in verse 1. I want to try to get to verse 2. That's where I really want to talk. So verse 2 says, and do not be conformed to this word. Now, there's three verbs that drive this. Here's the first one. Do not be conformed. The word conform means to press into a mold. All right, I, I like this this example, uh, jello kind of, you know, jello molds and that kind of stuff. That's part of it. I like the one that's about cake icing because I like cake, especially if it's got ice cream with it. But in this case, cake icing, the people who really do it now at me, in my house, we do icing. You get one of those little, you know, you buy it, it's already made and you just get a spoon and you slap it on the cake. Okay. Real bakers make their own icing. They put it in this funnel looking thing. You know what I'm talking about? And they push it down in there and then they squeeze it out of a little nozzle and then they can decorate the cake with all kinds of little stuff that's being conformed. They're taking the icing and pressing it into their own mold with what they want it to be. That's the word. Don't be conformed. Don't be pressed. Well, into what? Don't be conformed to this world. Literally, the word here is this age. What Paul is saying to his people, based on your abandonment of yourself to Christ, that's verse 1, the way you come into this life then and the way you live it out is, first of all, it involves don't be pressed into the world's belief system. Belief system that functions in pushing behavior also. See, I think this underscores one of the missing ingredients in the way we do Christian education. I said from the outset, I think we need to change our paradigm a little bit. What we've done largely in our churches is to press Bible knowledge. Now, that's important. Okay? You will never hear me say that's not important because I believe it's critically important. I believe it's so important that I'm not going to just buy into what somebody says the Bible says. We need to be good handlers of Scripture, not just fighting for the value of Scripture. Okay, that's a good place for an amen right there. Somebody's going, what did he just say? Don't just fight about it. Be good handlers of Scripture. What does it really say? Be a good student of Scripture. But that cannot be the end. That's just the tool that allows us to do what Christian education really is designed to do, which is to help us understand the world in which we live. When I went, you know, after that thing I was talking about where God broke through my reality and said, this is for you, within six weeks, I had gone from pastoring that church to also becoming a student. Back to the formal education process. 
After 14 years of being in an educational coma, all of a sudden I was thrust into a classroom of an institution that thought it was really important to be smart at what you say. And they had the audacity to tell me to read a bunch of books. Now, I didn't like that because for 14 years, the books I'd been reading were Tom Clancy and Calvin and Hobbes and, you know, theological books. In a six-week stretch, from the time that God said, this is what I want you to do, I went through the entire admission process into this, and I found myself sitting in the classroom in Waco after having, in six weeks, reading nine different books and writing papers on every one of them. Oh, my goodness. I didn't want to do that. Like that. It shocked me out of my coma into a lifestyle then for the next three and a half years that shook every part of who I was as a minister. The very first thing they started teaching us when I went onto that campus was how to understand the winds of our philosophies of the age. Postmodernism, some of those kind of things. Stuff that sitting in a church office in deep south Texas, I wasn't even remotely concerned about. And yet even today, those philosophies are pressing in on the church to try to get us to soften a bit about who we are. Are we teaching that kind of stuff in our Sunday school classes or are we just saying... know the Bible. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We must equip the students of this church, that's all of us, to be thinking Christians. Be transformed, he says. Literally, that means be metamorphosized. It's the exact word coming out of Greek. We pull it into English, metamorphosis. Be transformed, he says. The picture, what, what is that animal that if everything happens right, becomes a butterfly? It's a caterpillar, right? Have you ever seen a butterfly that refuses to be a butterfly? They just love to be in a caterpillar. You, you know, it's, it would be like finding a butterfly who just says, I don't know why I got these big pretty things on my back, but I'm going to walk across this limb. Butterflies are made to fly. In order to get to what they're made to do, they have to go through this transformation, right? That's the word that Paul uses here. Be transformed, be metamorphosized. Now, how do we do that? He tells us that's the third verb that drives this, by the renewing of your mind. This is not Paul saying, retract from the world, build walls, and hide from everything that's evil. Actually, quite the opposite. Paul's saying, with all that Christ has done for you, with you, and through you, don't buy into the world system. Be changed from the inside out. Change the way you think. And then Paul always is doggedly evangelistic. And then when, as you're doing that and as you're growing and developing, get out there where people are, where the winds of the philosophy of our age are pressing in on people and then blowing them to hell and make a difference. That's Christian education. That's what we have to be about. Getting people, not just biblically smart, that's, 
That's clearly part of what we have to do. The next step is, how do people get along in a world that is running away from God? Are we doing that? How good at that are we? Metamorphosis requires more than biblical knowledge. So how do we get there as a church? Here's my first suggestion. It starts with personal commitment. Let me ask you this. Are you more committed to losing weight, getting in shape, having financial success, whatever else? Are you more committed to those things than you are to walking with Jesus Christ and growing in his grace? If you are, then your priorities are jacked up. It starts with personal commitment. It goes also, we have to raise and maintain institutional expectations. As a church, what do we expect of our teachers? Are we helping them be better at this? And finally, we have to allow honesty to trigger innovation. The level of thinking that got us into this is not going to be sufficient to get us out. If we're talking about a new paradigm... We may have to figure out what that looks like. But we'll never do that if we're not honest with ourselves and say what we've been doing is really not working very well. So what I've just done in the last, well, overall with our church the last several hours is I have dropped an atomic bomb into the middle of our education process. And I'm asking those of you who are leaders in that process to work with me so that we get this right. Because the lives of those people sitting around you need us to get it right. I promise you there is a level of a Christian life that is out there beyond where you are that will blow your mind. And it doesn't matter how far along you are. I promise you there's another level out there. And every one of those levels you get to, you go, wow, this must be part of what Jesus meant by I will give you abundant life. The question is how badly do you want it? And how honest are we about that part of our purpose statement? Let's pray. And so as we pray, the invitation to you is, where are you with God today? Are you ready to go to a new level with him? For some of you, that may mean that you need to begin a relationship with him, that you accept Jesus for who he said he was and what he does for us as Savior. And I'd invite you to do that. If you don't even know what that means, but you feel like it's got to have some merit for what you're thinking right now, then I'd invite you to just come on down. We'll talk about it. I won't embarrass you or anything like that. But that's where you start. It starts with a relationship with him. He says, come, follow me. Many of us have chosen to follow him, but we've also hit one of those plateaus, and we may be years into a plateau to the point that we've even forgotten there is another level out there. This is not about memorizing scripture. This is not about saying the right prayers. This is about growing to a point that God upsets your apple cart of a life. The offer's there. What do you do with it? Father, take this time. Move us. Blast us out of our complacencies. Take us further is our prayer. In Jesus' name.